Hi, Juliet here with a quick message before this episode starts. Everything you need to be more strategic amid the busyness of the school term is contained in the 170 plus episodes of this podcast. But sometimes you can get there a bit faster with some personalised help. I host a termly online workshop specifically designed to help the support staff within schools to make the shift from being reactive to strategic. Our next workshop is coming up soon and we're going to be reflecting on how things have gone this academic year and strategising for the academic year to come so that you can confidently prioritise your workload, overcome the obstacles that are holding you back and redirect your time and focus onto your priorities. At the end of the session, I promise you're going to be feeling more energised, ready to hit the ground running with a clear plan of action. This term's workshop is going to be run on Thursday the 16th of May, and you can find out more and book your place at www.consultjuliet.co.uk slash plan. I hope to see you there. Now, let's launch into this episode. In the UK, we've seen a very significant shift towards bursaries fundraising and away from capital project fundraising, certainly since COVID, although actually this this trend was occurring before that as well. Welcome to the Independent School Podcast. Thinking and acting strategically is the key to both securing the future of your school and helping to build a more equal and just world. My name's Juliette Corbett. I'm a consultant, speaker and facilitator specialising in helping independent schools. In this podcast, I translate tried and tested strategy and fundraising techniques into a language that works for schools. So if you're a senior leader in a private school and you want your daily work to feel less exhausting and more strategic, and if you want to once more feel the joy of making the world a better place through education, then you're in the right place. Welcome and let's get started on this week's episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode where we're going to be thinking about three strategic fundraising choices. So what I'm going to be talking about today is three things that you must get clarity on. They're they're phrased as questions, they're choices for you to make, but you need to have clear decision making and you need to have stability around that decision making before you can successfully fundraise. And I'm aiming this episode at senior leaders and governors who don't necessarily have fundraising experience. So certainly it might be useful for director of development to keep listening. It might help you to structure your thoughts and think about how you present these strategic choices to senior leaders and governors. But you probably will have heard most of this before. I'm aiming this episode at those people who don't necessarily thought about fundraising in a professional sense before or perhaps you're a governor who's had experience of fundraising in a different not-for-profit sector and are wondering how it how it fits how their experience fits within schools and and educational fundraising so we're going to be talking through these three key strategic choices and there are no rights or wrongs but there are some little tips in this episode about how you can make sure you pick the right thing for your school I just want to pause for a moment to say thank you to you. The Independent School podcast has now passed its second birthday, published more than 100 episodes and has had over 6,000 listens. As the founder and host of this podcast, I've been really humbled by the number of people who have told me that it's really helped them. From school heads who've rushed up to me at conferences and told me how it's been a real guide for them through tricky times, through to experienced directors of development who have said it reassures them that they're on the right track. So thank you for listening and for all your kind comments along the way. 
If this podcast is helping you, then I invite you to join the 300 people who have asked to get my weekly emails. That way you'll hear about each episode as it's published, as well as the special offers that I only tell people about when they're on my mailing list. So to get my weekly emails, you can go to www.consultjuliet.co.uk slash sign up. Okay, so before we dive into these three strategic choices, I just need to say there is no right or wrong answer to any of the questions that I'm posing today. There's no kind of hidden agenda. There's no sense that the data out there would point you in one direction or the other definitively. There's sometimes some best practice around what your your um, first default answer might be, but it's always worth exploring whether the alternative um, approach is right in your school. What is, however, really important is not that you're aiming for a definitive right or wrong answer to these questions, but that you are aiming for clarity of decision making within your senior leadership team and governors in order to give your development office a really clear steer on where their fundraising strategy needs to be um, heading. And then having given that clarity, you need stability for at least a couple of years to really know whether the approach that you're taking is going to be working. Now, it might be that you receive kind of signals from your prospects that you're not taking the right approach, in which case you definitely may want to switch and be agile in your strategy before a year or so is up. But you certainly don't want to be sort of flip-flopping between different strategic choices willy-nilly for no apparent reason, just because there's an absence of clear decision-making from the top. So with that in mind, the first strategic choice that you have to have clarity on if you're going to be fundraising is what are you fundraising for? Now, this seems so obvious. It really does. And you'd be surprised, however, how many schools really flounder on this. In the UK, there are three categories of projects, which I'm going to talk about very, very briefly, that you could be fundraising for. And so getting some clarity on which direction you're heading in is really important. So the first type of fundraising project you could be undertaking is a capital project. So we use the phrase capital fundraising to mean when we're fundraising for a brand new building or a brand new facility of some type, maybe a sports facility, sports field, astroturf, that kind of thing. Or sometimes if there is a significant refurbishment planned, you wouldn't do this just just to cover a lick of paint, but it needs to be a significant refurb. Now, this is the, the... kind of bread and butter of schools fundraising as it was about 10 years ago. And it's fairly well established that there's a model that works in the UK, which we've sort of imported and adapted from North American um, educational fundraising that gives you a really clear sense of how to run a capital fundraising project. But within the UK, we're also seeing schools move away from capital projects. And that's because more and more schools are interested in the second type of fundraising project, which is bursaries. Now, different terminology is used in different places. There, you might be thinking of it as student support, free places, fee remission. Different phrases are used in different parts of the world. But when I say bursaries, what I mean is means testers. This is based on a potential pupil's family income. So it's a means tested award. And in the UK, we've seen a very significant shift towards bursaries fundraising and away from capital project fundraising certainly since COVID, although actually this this trend was occurring before that as well. So the second type of fundraising project then is bursaries. But even once you've made the decision, if you're going to be focusing on bursaries, 
there are some supplementary questions that you need to be addressing and getting clarity from senior leadership from governors really early on. The first of those questions is, are you going to be fundraising for endowment or are you going to be fundraising for expendable funds that you can spend now on bursaries? Really two different approaches. I know governors love the idea of endowment. Generally speaking, it's quite hard to go straight into endowment fundraising. So I normally would recommend that schools think about a form of expendable um, bursaries program. So a spend now or pay as you go bursaries program is sometimes called, at least in the first instance, to demonstrate impact. And that when you find the right donors who are willing to give it a significant level, then obviously endowment is something that you can explore with them. The second area you need clarity on is where are your bursaries going to be targeted in terms of which year groups? So a lot of schools target their bursaries from year seven, which is age 11 up. Some schools think about bursaries at sixth form level only, so that's just the final two years of school. Thinking about the balance between if you're a day and boarding school, you've got a decision there to make about whether your bursaries are going to be for both day and boarding pupils or one or the other. And then following on from that, if you're a boarding school, you might have decisions around, are you looking for local children? Are you looking for children from an inner city that's further away, but perhaps within the same country? Or are you looking internationally for potential bursaries pupils? All of those things need to be explored because they have different impacts on your business model. Another area that can sometimes trip people up is the idea that as well as it being means tested, and it has to be means tested based on family income if it's going to count as a bursary, but a lot of schools are also layering onto that a sense of academic achievement or perhaps talent in a different area such as sport or art or drama, music, etc, etc. And so being really clear about how those two elements, the means testing and the talent elements, layer up on top of each other again key strategic decisions that make a difference to the school strategy so they need to be made at the top and then finally for thinking about bursaries you've got to have some clarity on how much of the planned expenditure on bursaries is going to come from fundraising and how much of it is going to be funded through your fee income again pros and cons different ways of doing things normally schools would have a mix of the two to fund their bursaries so we're still thinking about strategic choice number one what are you fundraising for? We've talked about capital projects, we've talked about bursaries. There is a third option, which I'm seeing become increasingly popular in the UK, but it's still quite small, still quite small, but growing. And that is state school partnerships projects. Now, these tend to be lower cost than bursaries. They tend to be at the moment in most schools, a little bit experimental in terms of the the um, frameworks that we're using for these partnerships is still just kind of being formed and being refined at school level um, at the moment. So it might or might not be the right fit for your school, but certainly I am seeing some schools now fundraise for those state school partnership programmes. So the key thing is you have to make a decision. Now, in making a decision, this is an iterative process of working with your prospects. So you have to think about, from a school strategy point of view, what do you want to fundraise for? start to develop an inspirational case for support that you can then test with feasibility conversations with prospects. And then depending on the feedback you get from those prospects, you can start to refine or maybe even go back to the drawing board um, in order to to make sure that the project that you select that you're going to fundraise for meets the requirements of both the school in terms of it being a strategically important project and meets the requirements of your potential donors as well. So that's the first 
key strategic fundraising choice. And actually, I think it's the hardest. I really do think it's the hardest. And I think it is takes time to get the decision. And in some cases, of course, you can do more than one. But if that's the case, you need to make sure that you have the capacity um, in, in your development office in terms of the staff capacity in order to run more than one of those projects simultaneously. So moving on to your second strategic choice, who are you fundraising from? Now, this one seems pretty easy until you start diving into the detail in terms of the reality that many directors of development are facing. So the obvious answer is that you want to be fundraising from a wide group of people within your small community in order to make your fundraising as sustainable as possible. The obvious stakeholder groups that you can be fundraising from are parents, both past and current, alumni, and then you've got staff and governors, again, past and current. Now, in the UK, and this might be different in different um, parts of the world, but certainly in the UK, when I'm working with UK schools, I don't recommend thinking about trusts and foundations or corporates, except two exceptions. Firstly, you might be talking to an individual, a prospect, who wants to give through a corporate or through a trust and foundation, in which case that's just a mechanism. It's still the individual that you'll be cultivating. So that's one exception. The second is where you have a very mature development function and you have capacity within your team to explore and to develop deeper relationships with local corporates, perhaps, or trust and foundations. So it's certainly possible to fundraise from them, but it's not normally the first audience you would go to. So wait until you've got a slightly more mature development team. So thinking about those key fundraising groups, there are always challenges to getting permission for the fundraising team, to the development office, to be actually communicating with these audiences. And with parents, often I find that heads and senior leadership teams and governors can be quite protective of their parents. And so it's really important that you are um, alert to the arguments, that the persuasion of your director of development to the fact that parents do give philanthropically to their school that they're also paying fees for in a much more transactional manner. They do give philanthropically, assuming they have as a project with a really inspirational case for support behind it. So parents are a really valid fundraising stakeholder group. Please don't ignore them. But sometimes schools that are starting on a fundraising journey do find that a little bit more discussion and reassurance and trust needs to be developed before permission can be given for fundraising from parents. Alumni is fairly common. You don't always often have the same sense of protectiveness. The challenge here is around data, is around actually being in touch with enough alumni. And that's where a really active alumni relations programme can really stand you in good stead for when you're ready to really up your fundraising momentum. And then that final group of staff and governors, both past and current, this is a really fascinating one. I think that it's critically important, especially for senior leaders and governors, to be giving philanthropically to the fundraising project that they have selected. And the reason that I say that is I know that governors give a lot of time voluntarily. I know that senior leaders also give a lot of time. And although they're paid for that time, it's not at the most generous remuneration in comparison to some other sectors. But imagine the power of being able to say to your parents, to your alumni, that 100% of senior leaders and governors are supporting this project with a philanthropic gift. It doesn't have to be much. It'd be £50 a year. It could be £10 a year. It really doesn't matter. What does matter is that you're able to communicate to your wider pool of prospects that those senior leaders and governors are actually giving themselves. 
Okay, so that's your second strategic choice. You need clarity on who are you fundraising from. Moving on to our third and final strategic choice, how will you fundraise? Now, this is obviously massive. (laughs) There's a huge amount of debate that goes on here. But at the very top level, strategically, the key question is going to be, how are you going to divide your time between major gifts fundraising, community fundraising and legacies? So let's go through each of those very briefly in turn. Major gifts. This is where you're asking face to face. I guess it could be of a video call, but ideally it's actually in person. You're asking for significant gift sizes, so major gifts. Now that will be defined differently by different schools, but generally speaking, we're thinking of a ballpark where you're asking someone to give the biggest philanthropic gift that they might give in a decade, for example. That's the kind of level that you're thinking of asking. And it requires quite a lot of time for each ask, each cultivation process with each individual. But when it works, it can result in a really significant size of gift. And generally speaking, in schools, we have the data to back this up from the IDPE benchmarking. Actually, the return on investment for major gifts is relatively low. So it's often a good place to start uh, if you've if you're got a fairly small fundraising team. The second type of fundraising that you could be considering is community fundraising. And by this, what I include is small sized gifts. Often you ask for regular gifts. So it'd be sort of a a £20 a month type direct debit gift. You're soliciting that. So you're asking for those donations by email, through social media, through telephone campaigns, um, through speeches and, and kind of newsletters that are going out from the head to those various different communities we talked about. And so it builds up with a lot of people giving a small amount that gives you a really broad foundation, sustainable foundation for your fundraising programme. And I'm going to put a a link in the episode notes to the episode that I recorded with Ed Lang from Buffalo Fundraising Consultants a couple of weeks ago, where we explored a lot more detail into community fundraising. So go check that out if you're interested in hearing a bit more. So the first one was major gifts fundraising, second was community fundraising, and then the third way that you could be fundraising is through legacies. Now, this is where you ask people within your school community, often focused on alumni or former staff, doesn't have to be, but that's the often the, the key audience for legacies. You're asking them to make a gift in their will so that when they die, something comes to the school. Often we find that it works best when you've got a legacy society. A lot of schools have a legacy society with an annual lunch and a kind of a membership Um, kind of badge or pin or something to indicate membership of the Legacy Society. It tends to have a very long lead time. So the work you put in now may not actually result in gifts for another 10, 20 years, but it's a really important part of creating a long-term sustainable fundraising strategy because it can result in really significant donations, really significant scale of philanthropic donations. So that third strategic choice, how will you fundraise? Basically, the answer is you need a little bit of each. You sort of need a little bit of major gifts, a little bit of community giving, a little bit of legacy fundraising to have a really good, well-balanced fundraising strategy. But we know that you can't do everything, or at least you can't do everything and do it well. You're just going to burn out. You're not going to have enough staff time. So you have to make strategic choices about where you're going to focus your energy. And generally speaking... If you're really, really just starting out, then the return on investment for major gifts will be higher than for community fundraising or from legacies. But you shouldn't wait too long before you move on to diversifying out into community giving and legacies as well.
So hopefully that's been helpful. It's a bit of a whirlwind through a lot of issues. Um, There are various other episodes in the podcast that explore different specific parts of what I've been talking about. So do dive back through the back catalogue for those. But basically the message from today's episode is you need to have clarity over what you're fundraising for, who you're fundraising from, and how you'll fundraise at the highest strategic level You have to have clarity, you have to have buy-in from senior leaders and from governors to give the stability that the development office needs to develop their plans, develop their strategies, and then start to test them. And as with everything, you can change as you go because people are telling you and you're getting feedback to say that you're not quite got the strategy right, you need to adjust it, that's great. But don't just change it because you've had a new idea this term and you want to try something a bit different. It needs to have stability over a year or two at least to really know whether what you're doing is working. Hopefully that's helpful. As always, I love to hear your feedback. Just let me know if you have any questions. Talk to you again next time. Bye-bye then. Thanks for listening to the Independent School Podcast, the podcast that helps senior leaders in private schools to think and act more strategically, both because they want to secure the future of their school and because they want to help build a more equal and just world. You can listen in everywhere that podcasts are available. And if you want to catch up on previous episodes or follow any of the links that I've mentioned today, just head over to www.consultjuliet.co.uk slash podcast.